Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 187, Edward V. First of all, just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a group of independent-minded folk who like a bit of a cast now and again. You can find out more at agorapodcastnetwork.com, and this month our featured podcast is the Renaissance English History Podcast by Heather Tasco. Social history, music, the arts, with a bit of armada and wield and iron industry thrown in for fun, the Renaissance English History Podcast is the uncreatively named podcast that can't seem to get out of the 16th century. And, hang on at the end, I've got some news about a bit of fun I thought us History of Englanders should have. Oh, and don't forget to go to the website, thehistoryofengland.com. There's a timeline of all today's events that I'm sure you'll like, and it took me ages to do, so go and have a look at that. OK, then. Last week, Edward IV popped his clogs. All rather surprisingly, as it happens, he was only 40 years old. No one expected him to die for quite a while yet. Pasties or no pasties. Gut the size of a compost heap or not. Really, it was most thoughtless of him to do such a thing. But then actually, England, unlike France, has a pretty good record of dealing with minorities. If you look back to Henry III and the rock William Marshall, for example, or to Henry VI and his royal uncles, and compared to those situations, things looked pretty rosy. Not only was Edward V twelve, which is just a stone's throw away from his majority, really, but the king's loyal brother, the Duke of Gloucester, was at hand to become protector of the realm, which indeed seemed to have been Edward's last wishes. Not all the players were at hand in London, however. The main event himself, Edward, was in Ludlow in Shropshire, some days' journey away. 
Although there had been a rumour of Edward's death earlier in York, Richard of Gloucester first heard for sure when a messenger clattered into his castle at Middleham in the north of England somewhere around mid-April. Edward had died on the 9th of April. The message came from William Hastings, the king's right-hand man. It said, The king has left all to your protection, goods, air, realm. Secure the person of our sovereign lord Edward V and get you to London. Or words to that effect. So Gloucester took himself to his beloved York for a funeral ceremony and there he was the first to pledge his allegiance to the new Yorkist king, the 12-year-old Edward. But even a grieving brother had to pay attention to the affairs of state and so he wrote to the royal council stating his claim to be recognised as protector. But at the same time he expressed his consolation for the queen, Elizabeth Woodville, and for her loss and told her that he was preparing himself and girding his loins to do his duty that his fealty to Edward V demanded. The point here is that, just like Humphrey of Gloucester all those years ago with Henry VI, as a royal uncle, Richard of Gloucester clearly expected to take up the role of protector. Last time we discussed whether there was any enmity between Gloucester and the Woodvilles, and actually the evidence for that is rather slight. Now there appears little doubt that Hastings and the Woodvilles were at each other's throat. But despite that, now in a letter to Hastings, Gloucester, right from the start of this affair, identified the threat to his position from the influence of the Woodvilles. As far as he's concerned, he writes and agrees with Hastings that the Woodvilles cannot be allowed to control the new king and the council. So, there may not have been enmity before, but there's plenty of opportunity for enmity now, in this delicate situation. Gloucester must have had a big evening with the quill and parchment, because he also dashed off a letter to Rivers in Ludlow, saying that he'd really value the chance to show his respects to the young king and enter London together. So, if Rivers could let him know the route he'd be taking and when he was going, he'd join them on that solemn entry into London with the new king. Seems fair enough. Interestingly enough, Gloucester got another letter himself, though not this time from the Royal Council. Oddly enough, this was from Henry Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham. Odd, since really Buckingham was something of an unknown quantity. Although a duke with royal blood, he'd been excluded from the centre of power by Edward IV. In his letter, Buckingham placed himself at Gloucester's disposal and casually mentioned that he had a thousand men who would be equally pleased to help out. And why didn't he meet him on the way south to London? Buckingham was starting the bidding here. Gloucester, old chap, this isn't going to be easy. Get yourself some bully boys. But interestingly, Gloucester wrote back. Yes, that seems like a good idea, but 300 men would be plenty. No need to overdo it. And Gloucester pointed out that he himself was only coming down with a couple of hundred. And then off Gloucester set to take up his role, the loyal servant of the kingdom going to take up his duties. Meanwhile, down in the big smoke, the death of the king found many members of the king's council in town. There was Edward Woodville. There was Thomas Gray, the Marquis of Dorset. Stanley, Audley, William Hastings, of course. John Morton, the clever Bishop of Ely. Lionel Woodville, the Bishop of Salisbury. 
and a chap called John Howard. He's worth a mensch, is John Howard. He's about 40 at this point and is one of Edward IV's loyal household, one of the most hench of his henchmen. He played the typical role of an esquire of the body. He was with Edward in his exile to the Low Countries in 1470. He fought with his lord at Barnet. He was in France in 1475 and one of the lucky guys who got a French pension. Through his position at court and his deep and energetic involvement with the sea and shipowning, his land, power and influence in East Anglia grew and by the 1460s John Howard was a wealthy and major player there. So much so that he was rich enough to lend a thousand quid to the Mowbray Duke of Norfolk. Interestingly, he had a faint claim to the old Mowbray inheritance. But the marriage of the king's second son, Richard Duke of York, to the sole remaining Norfolk heiress, Anne Mowbray, had extinguished that claim by 1481. But then, little Anne died, just ten years old, poor little rabbit. This was inconvenient for the House of York, missing out on all that inheritance, but no worries. For yet again, Edward had played fast and loose with the laws of inheritance, putting aside the rights of the other Mowbray heirs in favour of Richard. So I mention Howard for three reasons, really. Firstly, I have no self-control and ability to stick to one storyline. Secondly, because Howard will become a significant family, so I thought I'd introduce them. And thirdly, because here was a capable man, not a natural supporter of the Woodvilles or anybody else, he was Edward IV's man. He's eager to grow his power and influence. And there were other men like that. Here was an example of a valuable man to be courted by somebody. Anyway, back to the main story. The Royal Council met and it was pretty clear that it had a fault line. On one side of it, the Queen and the Woodvilles, and on the other side of it, the party of Hastings. Hastings had proved his loyalty many times to Edward IV, and now with his old friend gone, his loyalty was very much to his heir, Edward. And also, of course, to himself, he had no intention whatsoever of being cut out by the Woodvilles if he could help it, and there were a lot of them. So he would most certainly have feared that happening. So Hastings had a clear, shared interest with Gloucester. Hence all those letters and advice. So, the Queen convened a royal council, probably within a couple of days of the King's death on the 11th of April. And here, the fault lines rubbed together to create a rumbling, the beginnings of an earthquake. The Woodvilles were in their pomp at this stage, with the Queen, Dorset, Lionel, Edward, all in town. They felt powerful and in control. And the heir, Edward, was in control of two of their own, Anthony Woodville Lord Rivers and Richard Grey. A much-repeated quote from Mancini's history is traditionally rolled out here for good reason. The Marcus of Dorset made it quite clear to everybody in public that we are so important that even without the king's uncle we can make and enforce these decisions. So in the council, the Woodville's objective was to get Edward V to the capital pronto and make him king as soon as they possibly could. Now, no one would have thought Edward capable of ruling on his own at the tender age of 12 that would have to wait until he was 
well, let's say 16, probably maybe even 15. But it would probably be much easier to have a regency council as existed for Henry VI, if Edward was king. And if that happened, Gloucester would clearly be on the council, but he would just be a leader of the council, one of many, primes inter pares, not a protector, not a kind of temporary king that a protector looks like. Looking at the precedence from Henry VI's reign, when Henry had been crowned at the age of nine, Humphrey of Gloucester's role as protector had been formally ended after he'd been crowned, and power given to the Regency Council, much to Humphrey's annoyance. And the person of the young king had been in control of someone else, not the protector. So the struggle in this first council meeting was between Woodville and Hastings. The Woodvilles were seeking to get Edward down to the capital and crowned as quickly as possible, along with a powerful army to enforce their supremacy and make sure nothing went wrong. And then set up a Woodville-dominated regency. Hastings wasn't keen on that idea. Hastings wanted to see everything put on hold until Gloucester could arrive, so they could get him in place as protector and keep the Woodville's knives from ripping out his heart. Which heart, of course, in the medieval magnate idiom, meant his lands, his power and his influence. And so battle was joined and it was clearly a humdinger. First blood probably went to the Woodvilles by a nose. They made a number of appointments to official jobs and tasks, which included Hastings, but conspicuously did not include Gloucester and Buckingham. Then there was the big one. They insisted on and gained agreement for an early coronation the 4th of May. Hastings must have been in a sweat as these decisions went against him. And so he laid it all on the line for the big third issue, Edward's retinue. The Woodvilles were planning for a big army and then once in the capital, everyone would have to dance to their tune. But Hastings fought hard that this would be quite wrong, would raise temperatures in the capital. It was totally unnecessary. In the end, he insisted. If this went ahead, he said, he would flee to Calais. As it happens, Hastings was the captain of Calais, and let it be remembered that this was a super-powerful position, nothing like being captain of any other town, like Coventry or Farley Wallop or something. Calais was the only place outside London with what was effectively a significant standing army of hairy, smelly, nasty-looking veteran warriors with a taste for fresh human liver. If Hastings fled to Calais, that could be civil war. So, a compromise was reached. Edward's retinue would be no more than 2,000 men. Seriously, that sounds a lot to me, but Hastings felt that Gloucester could match this, which he probably could have done, but as we already know, had chosen not to. With modern-day communications, this political bonfire would have exploded into flame, or at least come to a conclusion pretty much immediately. In the 15th century, it all chilled for a while. Because travel preparation had to be made, actual travelling had to be done, and all of that. So, everything just chilled for a while. Rivers finally left Ludlow on the 24th of April. Gloucester left York on the 23rd of April. Gloucester's behaviour so far had been pretty much impeccable, so everything should be okay. They could all sort it out. They're all grown-ups. On the 29th of April, 
Rivers and Edward V and 2,000 blokes and no doubt assorted camp followers arrived at the town of Stony Stratford, about 15 miles south of Northampton, where he had arranged to meet with Gloucester. Since I've mentioned Stony Stratford, I should mention that the town's website describes it as the jewel of Milton Keynes, which strikes me as funny, though I don't know why. And it also tells me that it is the source of the expression cock and bull story. Stony Stratford is on the Roman road Watling Street out of London, now romantically renamed the A5, and thus Stony Stratford was a good place to stop, chill and listen to a good story on your journey. Stony Stratford had two inns, the cock and the bull. So there you go. Sounds like a cock and bull story to me. Anywho, Rivers decided he'd go north to see Gloucester. So he waved goodbye to his nephews, Edward V and Richard Grey, and off he trotted to Northampton to see the Duke. When he arrived, quote, They were received with an especially cheerful and joyous countenance and sitting at supper at the Duke's table, passed the whole time in very pleasant conversation. At some point, Buckingham also arrived in the camp and everyone enjoyed a thoroughly nice evening. In the morning, when doing his toilet, Rivers became aware of a kerfuffle downstairs with his servants. Going downstairs to find out what the matter was, he found out that when his servants and household had tried to leave the inn, they'd been prevented by a bunch of men wearing the boar of Gloucester and the Stafford knot of Buckingham. Well, Rivers put on the High Lord Act and blustered his way and was permitted to go and find Gloucester to have a word. When he got there, he found a very different Gloucester to the Gloucester he'd spoken to last night. This time he found a hard and unyielding Gloucester, who immediately had his household guards lock Rivers up. Gloucester and Buckingham then rode hard for Stony Stratford and the King. When they arrived, they arrived to a hustle and a bustle as the King prepared to move south with his 2,000 men. And there, surrounded by his household officers and, crucially, by Elizabeth Woodville's younger son Richard Grey and also his experienced Chamberlain Thomas Vaughan. Forward came Gloucester, followed by Buckingham and Gloucester knelt before the king and then rose to greet him. Look, new king, said Gloucester, there's real trouble here. We need to speak to you privately. And off they went to the king's tent, suspecting nothing. Once in the tent, Gloucester hit him with the punchline. Lad, your dad died because he was surrounded by bad men who ruined his health, and those bad men must be removed from power. In the words of the Croyland Chronicle, he asserted that his only care was for the protection of his own person, meaning the young king in this case, as he knew for certain that there were men in attendance upon the king who had conspired against both his honour and his very existence. At this point, Richard Grey tried to protest and stop this, but Buckingham silenced him. Gloucester went on, to say how those bad men, including the Woodvilles, had conspired to rob him himself of his protectorship, and that they were laying a trap now for Gloucester's life. And so they'd been forced to arrest Rivers, and Grey and Dorset were both in on it and needed to be banged up too. 
Edward was, as you would expect, horrified. He was this rather weedy-looking man, though not an unpleasant-looking man, actually. And he was the great Gloucester, about whom everyone talked as the right-hand man to his father. Here he was, telling him that the grown-ups he'd trusted more than anyone else in the world, that he'd lived with at Ludlow for years, that had brought him up day in, day out, that they were, in fact, traitors. Well, he was just not prepared to accept such a thing. The Marquis, Uncle Rivers, Uncle Grey, they were his friends. He trusted them, he knew them. And he was sure that the Queen would rule wisely. At which point Buckingham interrupted. Very much something you're not supposed to do with kings in the Middle Ages. Even twelve-year-olds. Women, he said, were not meant to rule. At some point in this nightmarish conversation, Edward realised that Gloucester wasn't actually asking, he was telling. And that hate it or loathe it, he could do nothing about it. It occurs to me that at this point came the critical point. Grey and Vaughan were led away. Gloucester went outside and told the 2,000 men of Edward that they were no longer needed. They were surplus to requirements and without anyone to lead them, they went. Surprise and deceit had been absolutely essential to Gloucester's actions, and they'd worked. News about what had happened reached London by the evening of the 30th of April, and the Woodvilles went potty with panic. Panicked to pottiness. Fight or flight. And the first instinct was fight. Messengers rushed to the lords and magnates in the city, asking for their support against Gloucester. Gloucester was threatening the safety of the realm. He had seized the king. He was travelling south with a bunch of uneducated northerners who couldn't even speak properly. But while the Woodvilles were trying to whip up the panic and raise the militia, Hastings was doing exactly the opposite. Gloucester had written immediately to Hastings, and Hastings' intervention at this point was critical. He gathered the lords together in London, These men would know Hastings very well indeed, and he was very popular. Chamberlain and right-hand man of the king, competent, fair, well-loved. Gloucester had saved the king from a plot, Hastings told them. And Gloucester had given him his assurance that he was coming with Edward to London so that Edward could be crowned Edward V. Here, look, here is his letter. You can read it yourself if you want to. The lords were worried about Rivers, Vaughan and Grey. Don't worry, they were assured. Their cases would be submitted to the Royal Council, all above board, ship-shape, Bristol fashion. Into the Queen and Dorset's inbox, there then fell a flurry of evasions and regrets. The Woodvilles had no support that could outface that of Hastings and Gloucester, and so fight changed to flight. The Queen fled to sanctuary at Westminster with her brood, Richard the Duke of York, ten years old, Elizabeth, seventeen, Cecily, fourteen, Anne, eight, Catherine, four, Bridget, just three. Whatever the rights and wrongs and inaccuracies, the image Thomas More creates of Elizabeth sitting alone in the rushes in sanctuary is a powerful one and the fear and dread she and her kiddiewinks would have been feeling must have been something. 
In fact, they were probably very nicely looked after by the abbot. The Marquis of Dorset, by the way, was also with Elizabeth in sanctuary. Meanwhile, Edward Woodville, 29 years old and another brother of Elizabeth Woodville, fled London with £10,000 of royal treasure and the English fleet. Subsequent events would see most of that fleet return to Gloucester and England, but Edward, two ships and all that £10,000 worth made their way to the only imp that was left, Henry Tudor in Brittany. Despite Hastings' assurance, London was in a fever of panic and worry. Who was with the Queen? Who was with Gloucester? What will Gloucester do when he arrives? Is Gloucester out to make himself king? When Gloucester and Buckingham did arrive in London, they and all their 500 men were wearing the black of mourning for Edward IV, making a contrast to the brightly coloured alderman and mayor in their scarlet. The church bells pealed. The crowds cheered. At the head of the procession came Gloucester and Buckingham, and looked there between them the young king. But behind them came four carts of weapons, proof positive, said Gloucester to anyone that would listen, that the Woodvilles had been planning war against them. They'd found them just outside London. Though actually, anyone with a brain cell would have realised that these were weapons being gathered for Edward IV's forthcoming Scottish war. It was the 4th of May, the day originally planned for Edward's coronation. London was still awash with worry and rumour, but the following day, Gloucester assembled the lords and city magistrates and led them all in a ceremony of fealty to the young king, and that settled nerves mightily. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On the 10th of May, the business of the Royal Council proceeded and everyone got even happier. And Richard was made protector. And made protector with quite advantageous terms, according to the Croyland Chronicle again. Upon this, the Duke of Gloucester received the same high office of protector of the kingdom, which had been given to Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, during the minority of King Henry. He was accordingly invested with this authority, with the consent and goodwill of all the lords, with the power to order and forbid in every matter, just like another king, and according as the necessity of the case should demand. It was decided in council that the young king should have the Tower of London as his residence, at which point you need to put away the connotations of the tower as a dark and gloomy dungeon into which people went and did not come out. It was simply one of the grander royal residences in London, though in this case the former is of course also true, as it happens. But my point is, this is not a sinister action. Take them to the tower! Throw them in the darkest dungeon! Not that sort of thing. It's a perfectly reasonable suggestion. More along the lines of, oh, let them have the Tower of London. It's lovely at this time of year. 
then it was decided that the date of the coronation should now be the 24th of June. So again, the folks worrying about the King Gloucester realised they'd been holding their breath for a week and let their breath out. Selecting ministers and servants of the Crown Richard was super conservative, selecting people trusted and not overly partisan. Nerves were calmed, temperature fell, folks relaxed. People sent home household retinues that they'd stuffed around for their protection. John Howard, for example, sent home 30 of his men. It wasn't all light, flowers, hugs, kisses and dancing around the maypole. There was some grit in the oyster. The council knocked Gloucester back on two points. Firstly, they dared to criticise, saying that, quote, The protector did not, with sufficient degree of considerateness, take measure for the preservation of the dignity and safety of the Queen. OK, he could let that go. More irksome was the new protector's demand that Rivers, Vaughan and Grey be tried for treason. Now, the lords had been worried about this from the start, and Hastings had promise. And so they set their faces firmly against it. These lads could hardly be tried for treason, they said. After all, at the time, you were not protector, so how can it be treason? That must have been upsetting to Gloucester. The here and now was one thing, but he had to think about the future as well. Here was the prospect of a bunch of men gaining their liberty who would not forgive him. And what about young Edward? At the moment, the 12-year-old was pretty powerless. But it might well be that Gloucester had just three short years of power before Edward became king. What then? Would he say, Hey, thanks, Unc, for arresting those people I loved and trusted best in the world. Thanks a bunch. Guard, seize this man. Throw him in the deepest pit of forgetfulness. It had to be a distinct possibility. Anyway, for the moment, no one was nervous. Everyone was relaxed. And the government of the realm went on pretty much as it should do. Glitchard of Roster now had two immediate objectives other than running the country. The first was the Blessed Queen, sitting in sanctuary. It was really bad publicity. And also, the ten-year-old Richard, Duke of York, couldn't stay there, really, could he? He was needed for the coronation of Edward. Or if he took another view, he was too close to the throne for Gloucester to be comfortable with his liberty. On this, Gloucester again had the lords on his side, and negotiations continued with the Queen. His second priority was to reward his team, the team that had won in the Cup. The rewards handed out to Buckingham emphasise in flashing neon lights just how important Buckingham had been to this whole journey for Gloucester. Buckingham was essentially made a Viceroy in Wales, Chamberlain of North and South Wales, custodianship of all 53 royal castles and the promise of more. It was extraordinary and unprecedented, and Buckingham must have been pleased beyond his wildest expectations. We can't forget this. Quite clearly, by coming to his side when he did, Gloucester felt that Buckingham had made a massive difference. Then there was the Earl of Northumberland, he gained as well, but cautiously, time-limited appointments in a way that sent that satrap a signal. 
our John Howard, was brought into the tent as far as he could be at this point. With William Hastings, Gloucester simply confirmed the jobs he already had, but they were so many, that's a pretty considerable thing to give. For Hastings at this point, then, this was both fine and dandy. He had so many lucrative posts, so much patronage he could dispense, really he could expect nothing more than what Gloucester had done. And from the terrible days of the Royal Council back on the 11th of April, things had gone brilliantly. Once again, here's the Croyland Chronicler. In the meanwhile, the Lord Hastings, who seemed to wish in every way to serve the two dukes and to be desirous of earning their favour, was extremely elated at these changes to which the affairs of the world are so subject, and was in the habit of saying that hitherto nothing whatsoever had been done except transferring of the government of the kingdom from two of the Queen's blood to two more powerful persons of the King's, and this too effected without any slaughter, or indeed causing as much blood to be shed as would be produced by the cut of a finger. So, there was nary a bunny as happy as Hastings. And so things went for close to a month, everything settling down, the business of government continuing along under the great seal with documents and orders issued in the name of the new king. As yet uncrowned, but king nonetheless. On the 5th of June, Anne, the Duchess of Gloucester, arrived in town and really everything seemed pretty good. On the morning of the 13th of June, the Royal Council was due again to meet. The Protector divided the council into two. Slightly odd, but hey, the idea was that one group concentrated on the coronation and the other group covered all the other business. Hastings, Stanley, Buckingham, John Morton and Rotherham, the Archbishop of York, were all in one group, convening in the council chamber at the Tower of London rather than the White Chamber in Westminster. Well, that was an interesting meeting. Obviously not nice cups of tea or custard creams, but drama aplenty. Richard came in, opened the meeting with the announcement that a conspiracy had been discovered against him. Awkward silence. Was this the reason for the separate meeting? Was it maybe to get their help against the conspirators? No. It was to accuse the guilty. Hastings, Stanley, Morton, Rotherham, you are all guilty of treason, thundered Richard. Amidst a blizzard of furious and angry denials, all four were taken from the room by armed men brought there specifically for that purpose. William Hastings was taken to the Tower Chapel, told to prepare to meet his maker, and then summarily beheaded. The most powerful man in Edward IV's reign, beheaded. The rest were detained, though were to fare rather better than Hastings. Stanley was let off, maybe because Gloucester was worried about his son, Lord Strange, sitting in the northwest and how he might react. John Morton was sent to a castle in Brecknach, in Wales, and Rotherham was let out pretty quickly. So, by golly, that's a change of pace. What happened there? 
Three days earlier, Richard had sent panicky letters up north to the people of York and the aged Ralph Neville. He asked for help, armed men, to aid and assist us against the Queen, her blood adherents and affinity, which have intended and daily doth intend to murder and utterly destroy us. Richard of Gloucester apparently suspected a plot between the Woodvilles and Hastings. This, of course, put the cat right back in the dovecot. The loss of Hastings, the permanent, unchanging point of reference for all Londoners, was gone. Men rushed for their weapons. There was uproar, people on the streets. The mayor moved to quieten things down, but hate it all, loathe it, panic, fear and dread were back in town. Richard and Buckingham, meanwhile, were fired up. Three days later, Richard determined to deal with that Queen thing once and for all. The council met and agreed with Richard that Edward V's brother Richard of York absolutely must be brought from the sanctuary. His presence at the coronation was surely critical. Sanctuary at Westminster was surrounded by armed men with big clubs. John Howard and the Archbishop of Canterbury were sent in to negotiate with Elizabeth. It's quite a scene to imagine. The Queen, her brood of children, the young Richard of York, the 80-year-old Archbishop desperate to avoid violence in sanctuary, strenuously persuading the Queen to trust Gloucester, promising that Richard would be sent straight back to her side after the coronation. And the Queen allowed herself to be persuaded. The Archbishop was obviously well-intentioned, Gloucester seemed to be still going ahead with crowning her son, so she'd risk it for the glory of her two boys, but she stayed firmly where she was with the rest of her kids. The next day, writs were issued, cancelling the Parliament planned for the day after the coronation. In point of fact, many people still arrived for Parliament, either because they'd already left, or because Gloucester changed his mind and decided to go ahead anyway, which one is not quite clear. On the 22nd of June, three days before the coronation of Edward V, Ralph Shaw, a Cambridge doctor of theology, was commissioned to preach a sermon at St Paul's Cross in London. St Paul's Cross was outside the cathedral and had become the de facto place for official announcements and sermons to be read. And Ralph's text was dynamite. This was the biblical text he thundered out to start his sermon. But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. Oh, hello, what have we here? The official version of the claims Shaw made in the following sermon would be recreated in 1484 in a document called Titulus Regius which you can, of course, read on my website. Titulus Regis says that when Edward IV had married Elizabeth Woodville, he had been already formally contracted to another, a lady called Eleanor Butler. And that meant that all his offspring by the marriage with Elizabeth Woodville were bastards and ineligible for the throne. Now, the Duke of Clarence had a son called Edward, but the Duke of Clarence had been attainted so that he and all his blood were disabled from the throne 
So who does that leave? That leaves... Let me see now. Oh, yes, I know. Richard of Gloucester. There is a little confusion in the sources. So Dominic Mancini says that everything started by recycling the old argument that Edward IV himself was a bastard because Cecily had had a fancy man and therefore all of his descendants were bastards and Polydor Virgil also agrees with that event but Polydor Virgil is deeply suspect. And anyway, if that was said, it quickly disappeared in the official version. What a chap called Philip de Comines in France says was that what had apparently happened is that a man called Robert Stillington, Bishop of Bath and Wells, had come to see Richard, maybe somewhere around the 8th or 9th of June, and he'd revealed this piece of news. If this was true, there's then some confusion about what happened next. Some say Richard shared the news with his inner council, whatever that means, and they told him to go forth and claim his rightful rightfulness, rightfully. Others said that the first anyone heard of it was the sermon by Shaw. Anyway, two days later, after Shaw's sermon, on the 24th of June, Buckingham spoke to the mayor and the City of London aldermen at the Guildhall, and even detractors were forced to admit that he spoke well. And so now it was clear that Gloucester was going to claim the throne, whether or not he'd intended to from the beginning. Now, the mood in the city rather depends on how you see the chroniclers, but I think it's a fair bet that there's a mood of suspicion and confusion, some fear, some anger on behalf of the young princes, a soup of emotion. There must have been many who did not easily reconcile themselves to the message that Edward was out, Gloucester was in. Gloucester was now gathering support for his own claim to the throne, again, whether because that was what he'd always wanted, or because, faced with this terrible surprise, he honourably and selflessly stepped into the breach. And so on the 25th of June, two days later, the half-cancelled assembly went ahead. I say assembly since it didn't proceed under the eye of a king, and so it can't officially be called a parliament, but nonetheless, it's a collection of the Lords and Commons. Buckingham again put the case to the Lords and the Commons. The Lords and the Commons decided that Gloucester it must be. But while they were thinking, on that very same day, further of Richard's orders were being literally executed. Orders had reached the North on the 23rd that Rivers, Grey and Vaughan were to be executed at Pontefract in Yorkshire. Rivers had time to complete his will, beg for Richard to ensure that it was implemented, given that Richard was probably the only bloke who could make sure that it was, and time to write a fatalistic poem, The Renaissance Man to the End. On the 25th of June, all three were executed. Very probably without trial. Both Croyland and Mancini take this view. It's only a suggestion of a later chronicler that Northumberland presided over a cursory court. Croyland recorded that, quote, Without any form of trial being observed, Antony, Earl of Rivers, Richard Grey, his nephew, and Thomas Vaughan, an aged knight, were beheaded. This was the second innocent blood which was shed on the occasion of this sudden change. 
Richard, on the other hand, might have argued that they were executed on the orders of the Constable of England, Gloucester, by the law of arms, for treason. The following morning, a delegation went from the Lords and Commons to Richard's house, Baynard Castle, and begged him to be king. Richard said he'd give it some thought. Later that day, the 26th of June, Richard appeared with his retinue, followed by many lords. He was mounted, his saddle of crimson cloth of gold furred with lettuce, a, a fur powdered to look like royal ermine, and he was preceded by a sword-bearer. The procession walked through London and Richard entered Westminster Hall. Westminster Hall presumably was full of its normal bustle, the shops, the legal benches, the furious coming and going. When Richard appeared, they no doubt stood silent. Accompanied by John Howard, John de la Poole, the Duke of Suffolk, and a whole host of lords watching, Richard sat on the marble chair of the court of the king's bench and took the royal oath and followed it up with a speech to the justices. It's not a coronation, but it was absolutely clear. Richard of Gloucester had assumed the royal prerogative and was exercising the royal justice. By the 28th of June, the first official proclamation of the managerial changes had been sent out, this to Calais, telling them who was the new boss and why. Richard was already distributing more goodies to his inner council, notably our John Howard, who we introduced earlier, was made Duke of Norfolk. This is incidentally a line that survives to the modern day. The coronation of the new king, Richard III, was then organised superfast for the 6th of July. And by this time the armed men from the north, 6,000 strong, were sitting outside London. Despite the speed, it was an occasion with all the magnificence of a coronation and interestingly Stanley had been released and was given a special honour of carrying the mace. Buckingham, as Richard's right-hand man, had organised the whole affair. And so there we go, Richard III crowned. As Paul Murray Candle put it, At the cost of four men's lives, without employing any military force, he had mounted the throne by a title of inheritance and the election of the lords and commons of the realm. Or, as the Tudor chronicler Polydor Virgil put it, Thus Richard, without assent of the commonality, by might and will of certain noblemen of his faction, enjoined the realm, contrary to the law of God and man. So, something of a difference of opinion then. Now, I have an announcement to make, as I mentioned at the beginning. I have very purposefully, in this episode, tried to stick to the non-controversial facts and nothing but the facts, which is terribly tricky for Richard III, to be honest. Not being controversial, I mean. So I have done it for a reason, which is that I think it's time for us to have a bit of fun and for me to put some prizes up for grabs at the same time. So here's the plan, and I hope you'll like it. Let us, let us, the History of England crowd, settle the Richard III debate once and for all. Once we have spoken, that's it. No one, no one could challenge our mighty authority. So, next week we have a guest episode. 
Time for you to gather your thoughts and do some research if you feel like it. Meanwhile, watch out for the odd post. I'll send some information your way via Facebook, the website, and if you could be bothered, you can have a look at that. Then, 24th of July, I will do an episode presenting what I think are three positions that you could take in this. Number one, the knave. Richard wanted the throne. He planned a campaign and he executed it pretty much as planned. Number two, the fool. Richard was as much a victim of events as anybody else. Edward left England in a delicate state. Richard was forced to act to survive. And each action he took forced him to react on the hoof. He was making it up as he went along. 3. The Saviour Richard was pretty much a saviour. Faced with a catastrophic situation, he stepped up, did what had to be done for the good of the kingdom. So, between the 24th of July and the 30th of July, we'll gather on the History of England Facebook page. You get to comment and or vote. It'd be great if you give an opinion, but all you have to really do is like the page and choose one of the options in your comment, one, two or three. There will be prizes, of course, for everyone who likes or has liked the page and voted, you'll go into a prize draw. The prize will be an original Edward IV halfpenny and a replica Richard III coin called a gold angel. Now, call me tight-fisted, but a real one of those angel babies would set you back serious spondulics. There'll also be some consolation prizes. With the help of my friend Bob, I have located some cut coins from the days of yore. They're not beautiful, but they are old. Watch out on the website and various Facebook groups. I'll put the rules up. And do check in next week for James Bolton, author of the Queens of England podcast, for a guest episode on a fascinating byway of history, the story of Mistress Jane Shaw. So, hope that sounds good. Which only leaves it to me, ladies and gents, to thank you for all for your kind attention and to thank donators Chris and Thomas. Thanks everyone, good luck and have a great week. And prepare, prepare for debate. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.